from St. Anne's Catholic Church in Broken Arrow, you are now listening to Forming Our Faith with Deacon Kevin. When Bishop Condorla released his first pastoral letter for the Diocese of Tulsa in 2018, he sought to revive and reclaim in eastern Oklahoma a dimension of the church that had long been overlooked and diminished, that of the domestic church. So contracted had this idea become that even the august and superb theologian, servant of God John Hardin, does not include an entry for it in the modern Catholic dictionary. Going back to antiquity, the domestic church has been used as a synonym for the family. The structure and substance of the family is, in miniature and within the walls of the home, the same structure and substance writ large found within the Catholic Church. At the heart of Bishop Condorla's reclamation of the domestic church is the desire to restore families to their proper place within the church, especially here in the United States where our national ethos is one of rugged individualism, to pinpoint not the individual as the cell of the church, but the family is something that strikes our American ears as alien. But the long centuries of faithful Catholics striving to live that faith, both for themselves and in their families, shows us something different and invites us to make our home in our homes. That's a strange thing to say, but I think it needs to be said. And think about the way we tend to live our lives. For many of us, and I include myself in that us, home can sometimes be little more than a hotel, a place where we sleep and keep our things while we do all the stuff of our lives. And I think it would be an interesting kind of study. How much time do we actually spend in our homes that we choose to spend there? How much of our time is spent in activity that takes us out of the home? Remember back to those days of 2020 when everything was closed? and the number of choices we had were limited. A lot of people went crazy in their homes. A lot of people resorted to things that are objectively unhealthy because they couldn't get away from their homes and the people they lived with. Alcohol consumption, pornography usage, domestic violence, all of these things skyrocketed when people didn't have the choice to do things elsewhere. The pandemic of the last few years showed many of us just how homeless we feel in our homes. The domestic church is the corrective to this homelessness. The whole point of the domestic church is that it gives us the place and the space to live out the commandment our Lord gives us to love our neighbors. The first neighbor we have isn't the guy who lives next door or across the street. It's the guy in the next room or the spouse I share my bed with. That's who I have to love. And the pandemic showed a lot of us how much room for improvement there is in loving our closest neighbors. Bishop Condorla directed that the domestic church should be the first and primary place of formation and education in the faith. For parents with children in the home, that means that religious education is principally done around the dinner table or in the family room not in a classroom. For married couples, that means that the interactions between husband and wife aren't just incidental or accidental, but providential, God-given opportunities to love in ways that reveal God's love for and to the world. For unmarried people or couples without children, that means giving themselves conspicuously in service to others. 
Bishop Condola directed that this be the way of Catholic living in every Catholic household and in every parish of the diocese. What that meant in practice in a lot of parishes was that there would be no more religious education classes, but that faith formation would now take place in the home. And I know this has been a source of frustration and distress for a lot of parents who don't think they know the faith well enough to teach it to their kids. I know this is a source of bemusement for older Catholics whose experience of formation was very different. But here's the thing, and it's a crucial thing. Whether parents know the faith well or poorly, they are forming their children. They're forming their children into the faith or out of it. Whether this focus on building up the domestic church is different from the way it's been done for the last hundred years, the domestic church is being built, either with sound foundation or with crumbling foundation. The domestic church isn't something extra we have to sign up to be a part of. We're already in it, in the midst of the lives we live every day. What we already do fortifies the church or destabilizes it. So whether you understand the concept well or not, it's already real in your life. The question hanging in the balance, and I've heard this often in my work in the parish, is how? How do we do this? You can go onto websites and find all sorts of books and programs and curricula and videos. So there are lots of resources out there, and they might not all work equally well for all families or all homes. A family with a bunch of young kids is probably going to be formed in ways that aren't fitting for an older, an older couple whose kids have moved out. College students maybe need something different than adolescents. And I won't dive into the weeds about the nuances here. I'll just say that whatever your family or household looks like, the first step is to take the first step. Decide to do something you're not currently doing to make your home more prayerful, more grace-filled, more open to growth and holiness. That first step might be as simple as praying as a family when you've never done that before. Then add something. You can be creative, and you have the entirety of the church's devotional and pious practices to choose from. There are simple ones to start with, like the Our Father saying grace before meals, or family members each sharing their petitions and praises at the dinner table. I think a lot of people fall into the trap of thinking that if something doesn't feel like it's working, then it must not be working. Or if they don't feel like they're doing it perfectly, they shouldn't be doing it at all. Don't think this way. The goal isn't a flawless performance. The goal is to grow closer to Jesus Christ and to each other. Prayer is difficult, especially at first, because we have to move in ways we're not used to moving. But we'll never arrive at the destination if we stay exactly where we are. Jesus called his disciples to follow him. To follow means you move with Jesus. So the first thing is to move. Forming our faith has been focusing on the Mass, because the Mass is a movement. The Mass is the offering of the whole person to God, a communion of my heart with the heart of the Blessed Trinity. We're obliged to go to Mass not because the Church is a cruel tyrant, but because this communion is what enlivens us and sustains us in the lives we live, lives that are meant to be offerings to God just as much outside of Mass as they are in Mass. The whole goal of the Mass is the worship of God, 
But it's not like that worship is supposed to end when we leave the church building. We're supposed to live our lives as an act of worship, knowing and understanding and appreciating how we commune with God during the Mass is supposed to open us up to communion with God at all times. So it might be for you that the first step in the movement of discipleship is going to Mass, taking your kids to Mass, inviting people you know to Mass. That won't be the only movement, but you need to make it a part of your movement. It's a precept of the Church to attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days, and this is because Mass both gives us something we need that nothing else can give us and allows us to give something in a way we can give nowhere else. During the last episode of Forming Our Faith, I talked about how Mass begins with the sign of the cross, which reminds us of our baptism and signals that Mass is a prayer. Yes, Mass is composed with many prayers, but Mass in its entirety is a prayer. Prayer is the response to the awareness of God's presence and a lifting of the heart to God. Prayer acknowledges that a somebody is speaking to somebody else. And prayer, if we're doing it properly, includes both our speech to God and God's speech to us. It's not just what we say to God, but also what God says to us. The rest of the Mass takes this dynamic into account. In response to the priest's invocation of the persons of the Blessed Trinity, the assembly says, Amen. This is a dialogue between the priest and the people. Dialogues are part of the Mass during which one of the ministers of the Mass says something and the assembly replies. Remember, everything in Mass means something, so the presence of a dialogue means something liturgically. It reminds us that Mass is not a private prayer but is the corporate worship of God by the people of God. It reminds us that in prayer, we don't just speak, but are first spoken to. And if we're thinking with the mind and the heart of the church, the dialogues are one of the principal ways that we actively participate in the Mass. Amen is one of those words whose meaning is so uncapturable in translation that the church dictates that we simply say it in its original language, Hebrew. If you look online or in the dictionary, the definition for amen is usually something like so be it or I believe. And while this is true, as far as it goes, the truth goes much further. In the Old Testament, amen is really close to an oath. An oath is the invocation of God's name to bear witness to the truth. Amen isn't quite an oath because it doesn't invoke God's name directly but it does carry with it the same burdens as an oath. In ancient Israel, one's very life was staked to the truth of the oath that was sworn. If one was so convinced about that truth to swear an oath about it, it meant that that one would be willing to die in defense of that truth. Put another way, if the truth attested ends up being false, let my life be forfeit. Amen is covenantal language swearing to the truth of what has been said. It's not just a convenient or poetic ending to prayer. Saying amen in response to anything means that we hitch our wagon, our honor, our integrity, and even our lives to the truth of that thing. Think about that the next time you're tempted to say amen. Am I willing to give my life for the truth of what's being said? Ending an invocation with amen is deadly serious business, 
and will do well to remember that the penalties for perjury are grave. In this case, the priest has just invoked the names of the persons of the Blessed Trinity, and our Amen is the affirmation that this is the true articulation of God's nature. He is one God in three persons. Everything we're about to do is done in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and not in anyone else's. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are the focus of our attention and the object of our worship. If any of that isn't true, we've got no business saying amen. The next dialogue that opens Mass sees the priest say to the assembled faithful, the Lord be with you, to which they reply, and with your spirit. The Lord be with you is a biblical greeting that first shows up in the book of Ruth. Most of us aren't intimately acquainted with every story in the Bible, and it's likely that many Catholics have limited familiarity with the story of Ruth. But if they did, this salutation at the beginning of Mass would be setting off bells, sounding a symphony of meaning for the entirety of Mass. Five little words in English, in Latin it's two words, set the stage for everything that's about to happen. But those bells stay silent if you don't know why those five words are important. The Book of Ruth is about a family of Israelites who settle in the neighboring nation of Moab. Moab was a nation to the east of the Dead Sea. Today, it's in the country of Jordan. The patriarch of the family was a guy named Elimelech, who was married to a woman named Naomi. Elimelech and Naomi have two sons, Malon and Chilon, who get married to Moabite girls, Ruth and Orpah. For reasons the Book of Ruth doesn't mention, the men of this family all die, leaving Naomi with her daughters-in-law. Naomi tells the women that they should go back to their father's homes and remarry. Orpah goes, but Ruth refuses, saying to Naomi, Where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. So check out what's just happened. This woman, Ruth, is determined to pull up her roots and follow her mother-in-law back to Israel. She's about to willingly make a pilgrimage from the place she's from to the place where the true and living God resides, the place where she knows by grace that she needs to be. The Mass just had its procession, which was a symbolic presentation of that pilgrimage and some of the first words we hear at Mass reinforce the notion of the pilgrimage, of our movement towards God. So Naomi and Ruth return to Israel, but they don't just go anywhere in Israel. They go to Elimelech's hometown, which is Bethlehem. In Hebrew, Bethlehem means house of bread. So this pilgrim, who's not native to Israel, sojourns into the land of promise and settles in the house of bread. Five words have just set the stage for the entirety of the Mass. Later in Mass, bread is going to play a part of our pilgrimage, just as it did for Ruth. When she settles in Bethlehem, Ruth one, one day goes out to glean grain left on the ground after the harvest. This relative of Elimelech named Boaz comes along and greets the harvesters. The Lord be with you. And then he proceeds to ask who this woman is who's doing all this gleaning. He learns who she is, 
and Boaz takes Ruth under his care, providing for her and Naomi's needs. Without her husband, Naomi has no claim to Elimelech's ancestral land. If Naomi and Ruth are to inherit his land and be freed from servitude, they need a kinsman of Elimelech to redeem it for them, which is exactly what Boaz does. Boaz and Ruth end up marrying and having a son named Obed, who is David's grandfather. This whole series of events packed into the liturgical situation with which the priest opens Mass, and if we have the ears to hear it, we're hearing the symphony of Ruth behind the notes of the greeting, the Lord be with you, and that it isn't just politeness at the beginning of Mass, it's cluing us into the fact that we are pilgrims in a strange land and have no rights until we are redeemed by a kinsman who restores us to what belonged to our forefathers. It's telling us that Jesus Christ, true God and true man, acts for us in a way that Boaz did for Naomi and Ruth, seeing us not as foreigners, but as brothers and sisters. It reminds us that the church is the bride of Christ and that we are sons and daughters of the Father. It reminds us that the child born in Bethlehem will become our food in the appearance of bread. All of this in five words. When addressing the meaning of this dialogue, the Catholic bishops here in the United States offer some guidance. By greeting the people with the words, the Lord be with you, the priest expresses his desire that the dynamic activity of God's spirit be given to the people of God, enabling them to do the work of transforming the world that God has entrusted to them. In their response, the people assure the priest of the same divine assistance of God's spirit, and more specifically, help for the priest to use the charismatic gifts given to him in ordination, and in so doing, to fulfill his prophetic function in the church. When the liturgy was reformed after the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, this attitude crept into the Catholic practice that active participation, which was specifically called for by the Council Fathers, meant more people doing more stuff during the Mass. So all sorts of liturgical ministries were created or opened up so more people could do them. Ushers, greeters, servers, readers, extraordinary ministers of communion, liturgical assistants. Active participation was interpreted as meaning that as many people as possible have to be involved in the execution of the Mass. But what this attitude did was empty the pews and put more people into liturgical action, and this robbed the people of God of their opportunity to participate in the Mass as the people of God. Active participation is explicitly defined in the Second Vatican Council's document on the liturgy. To develop active participation, the people should be encouraged to take part by means of acclamations, responses, psalms, antiphons, hymns, as well as by actions, gestures, and bodily attitudes. And at the proper time, a reverent silence should be observed. You are actively participating in the Mass when you respond to the priest's, priest's salutation in the dialogue. Active participation doesn't mean that we have an army of extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. It means that when the priest says, the Lord be with you, everyone in the assembly replies, and with your spirit. In the background of this dialogue is the entire dynamic of the Book of Ruth. And if we can imagine ourselves as Naomi and Ruth, 
our gleaning wheat so we won't starve and our Lord coming to us to provide for and redeem us, it becomes pretty clear that we're not passive spectators of a liturgical drama in which others are participating. No, we're already active because we have just made the same sort of journey that Ruth and Naomi did, coming closer to God's presence in the tabernacle. We participate through the dialogue not because that brings us into the Mass, but because we're already in the Mass. I hope by this point, in the middle of the sixth episode of Forming Our Faith, that the strata of the Mass are so many that plumbing their depth is going to unearth all sorts of things that aren't readily apparent from the surface. The Mass is laced with all of these words and gestures and symbols that bombard our senses and our imaginations with deep wellsprings of meaning. Every single element of the Mass is like this. Everything has this kind of depth of meaning. Anything in the Mass can be an intense object of prayer and an opportunity to grow more closely to Jesus Christ. It seems like I'm saying stuff like that a lot, but I'm pretty sure that most of us can grow immensely in our appreciation of what the Mass is trying to present to us and how it does that. But if we don't understand where the stuff of the Mass comes from, we can be blinded to the magnificence that the Mass shows us. St. Jerome, the monk who translated the entire Bible into Latin, once wrote that ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. At first hearing, this means that if we're not familiar with the words of Scripture, we can't really know Christ, who is the Word of God. So we have to know the basics of the Gospel. But it goes even deeper. If we don't know Scripture in its entirety, we miss the treasured chances to encounter and behold Jesus, like during the opening dialogue. I think the maxim here is that the investment of a little bit of time and energy and attention with Scripture will pay huge dividends for our appreciation for the Mass. Remember that the goal of this part of forming our faith is for your next Mass to be the best Mass of your life, and getting to the scriptural roots of the Mass can help make that goal happen. When these two dialogues end, loaded with all the theological and biblical freight they each carry, the Mass continues with what's called the penitential rite. The penitential rite is at the beginning of Mass because, theologically speaking, we cannot proceed any further into the Mass without it. The basics of Catholic theology hold that sin is a problem. In fact, it's not just a problem, it's the problem. Sin is rebellion against God and His commands for how we are to live. This rebellion is the problem because declaring your independence from God means that you have severed yourself from the source of all life. And if you're not connected to the source of all life, you're, well, dead. St. Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. And this is so because death is what happens when you don't have life. It's easy for us to think of death as divine punishment for human waywardness, and it is. But death is also just what happens when you're not united with that which gives life. Imagine a flower that has been cut from its stalk, or an apple that's fallen from the tree. It's no longer attached to the thing that provides it with its nourishment, and it just dies. It might linger for a little bit, but its future is certain. It's going to wither and decay because that's what dead things do. 
That's what we do because of our rebellion against God. That's what happens when we think we know better than God does about what's best for us. God is not a tyrant, and God's laws are not given to us because God is stronger than we are. We believe God to be a loving Father, and His commands are for our thriving and protection. God knows that do whatever you want leads to our ruin, not to our happiness. We struggle against this largely because our culture has adopted a distorted sense of freedom. Our culture tells us that freedom is the ability to do what we want, when we want, and as long as nobody else gets hurt, everything is fair game. We tend to see freedom as the absence of restraint. But think about this. When the apple is on the branch of the apple tree, it's not free to go wherever it can. Its freedom is somehow constrained. Once freed from the branch, the apple can go many more places, but it's guaranteed that it's going to die. We are much the same way. Unbounded from God, we might be able to do anything we wish, but the end of that avenue is desolation and death. If you're not united with the living God, you really can't give him that which is his due by right. If you've wandered far from home, you can't really participate in the banquet at the family dinner table because you're not there. At the beginning of Mass, we make a public confession that we are all of us prodigals, that we have each, through our free choice, disobeyed what God has commanded us to do and to be. If we're going to come back home, we need to turn around. And that's what the penitential rite is all about. There's this notion, both outside of the church and even within the church, that repentance is a sort of browbeating or self-flagellation that demands that we punish ourselves for our sins. But that's not it. The separation from God is the punishment. Repentance is that moment when we turn around, when the distance between us and God isn't going to get any greater. That moment isn't an occasion for punishment. It's an occasion of grace when reconciliation begins. It's the moment when God's grace captures us anew. It's that moment when we express our contrition for our bad choices and our confident hope that God can undo what we've done. There are notes of this dynamic between sin and redemption, between death and grace all throughout the Mass. Many of the proper prayers said during the Mass are echoes of this dynamic. The acknowledgement that we have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and the fact that, in the words of Irenaeus of Lyon, God's glory is man fully alive. If your next Mass is going to be your best Mass, be listening for these notes during that Mass. Whenever our sin, our weakness, our straying is incorporated into the Mass's prayers, they're always going to be followed by acknowledgement of what God does with our sin and what God does with repentant sinners. That's one of the really beautiful things about the Mass and how it gets presented over its course. What we do is followed with what God has done. It's a kind of dialogue that's reflected in the structure of the Mass. If Mass is a prayer, it makes sense that there are times of speaking and times of listening, times of confession of our sin and times of glorifying God. There are also times when what we do or what we have brought are taken by God and consecrated for His purpose and for His glory. And again, there's a deep well of symbolism here. 
And if we're not intensely focused in our participation in Mass, it's easy for all these symbols to escape us. The priest introduces the penitential act with, Brethren, let us acknowledge our sins and so prepare ourselves to celebrate these sacred mysteries. That kind of sets up the whole of the Mass. There are sacred mysteries to be celebrated, but our sins get in the way of us actually celebrating them. There are a few ways the penitential rite can transpire during the early stages of the Mass. One of them is the recitation of the Confidior. Confidior is the first word of, of the prayer that begins in English with, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned. Look what's contained in the first sentence of that prayer. I, along with everyone else at Mass with me, publicly state that I am a sinner. Let's put away the notions that we're basically good most of the time and that our nature tends towards goodness and not towards evil. In the Confidior, I say not only that I have sinned, but that I have greatly sinned. I'm capable of and in fact commit sins that rend the conscience and disfigure the soul. That's who and what I am when I'm left to my own devices. God knows it, but you need to know it too. That pious old lady in the pew near you, she's a great sinner. That young couple behind you with the new baby, they're great sinners. That priest at the presider's chair in the sanctuary, he's a great sinner. You, you're a great sinner. The point of the penitential rite is humility. True humility is to know ourselves as we are, to see through the opaque masks we try to cover ourselves with. The root of humility is the Latin word humus, which means earth. In the book of Genesis, man was fashioned from the earth. Humility is knowing what we are. If I'm a sinner, admitting that I'm not is as far away from humility as the sky is from the earth. The Psalms tell us that a humble heart God will not spurn, and at the beginning of Mass, we humble ourselves in order that God won't spurn us, for sure, but also so that he can lift us up. And if you're earth, the only place to go is up. The Confidior challenges us to see ourselves as we are. It also tells us why we have need of humility. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts and in my words and what I have done and what I have failed to do. I've thought things that harm my relationship with God and with others. I've said things that harm those relationships. I've done things I shouldn't have done, and I've not done things I should have. Most frequently, we talk, when we talk about and think about sin, we do so in terms of commission. I do things God has told me not to do. Many of the commandments tell us what we must not do. Thou shalt not take the name of God, the Lord thy God in vain. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Doing those things so often forms the bulk of our examination of conscience. But the Confidior also names what I failed to do, the good that I've omitted. This distinction is really important for the Catholic moral life, and I'm afraid we don't always engage with it with the depth we should. Sins of commission are those evils we have done, and we certainly shouldn't do evils. But we need to be more morally mature than trying just to avoid evil. Sins of omission are the goods we failed to do, and growth in holiness doesn't mean we just avoid sin. To grow in holiness is to actively will and do the good. 
When each of us is judged at the end of our lives, we'll have to give an account both for the evil we've done and the good we've failed to do. The Confidior is a time during the Mass when we anticipate this account, but it's worth thinking and praying about even before Mass starts. What are the evils you've done, and what are the goods you haven't? I confess to Almighty God, and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts and in my words, in what I have done and what I have failed to do, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. We strike our breast three times. The bads I've committed or the goods I've omitted all come down to me and to what I've chosen. Because I'm the one making the choices, I ultimately cannot pin the blame on anyone else. If I'm freely choosing something, I'm responsible for it. And this fault isn't just any old fault, it's grievous. It's a cause for grief. Grief is the proper reaction to the death of someone we care about. And in this case, the one who has died because of our sin is us. Our sin has cut us off from receiving the fullness of grace God intends for us to be fully alive. But it goes further than that. Because the church is not just a collection of like-minded people, but as a supernatural society of adopted sons and daughters of God, you should grieve the loss of your siblings. If your brother or sister tells you that they're dying, that should grieve you. Well, guess what? That just happened. All your brothers and sisters just admitted that they are grave sinners. So the grief I express during the Confiteor isn't just about myself. It's about you, too. At your next Mass, if the Confiteor is prayed, think about the person next to you or in front of you who is praying the prayer. Your sin grieves them because your sin is enough to cause the loss of eternal beatitude in heaven, and they don't want that for you. Imagine if we saw the men and women in the pews this way, not just as fellow churchgoers, but as fellow pilgrims on the journey to the heavenly homeland together. If we're venturing to heaven together, anything that takes you off the path is something that I should lament. This is at the heart of what it means to be Catholic. As Catholics, we understand that the faith we profess is not for each of us alone. Our Catholic faith is not me and Jesus, it's we and Jesus. We should want to be saints, but we should also want those around us to be saints just as much as we want it for ourselves. That's why we end the Confidior with, Therefore, I ask the Blessed Mary, Ever-Virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God. Mary, the angels and the saints, all they want is to, for us to join with them in the heavenly banquet, and so we ask for their prayers. But I ask for your prayers, too, because I need them. The Confidior is a conspicuous example of what we believe about the communion of saints, the solidarity all members of God's family have for each other. It just happened that we confessed that we are sinners who need God's mercy and God's deliverance. But at the end of the Confidior, we beg for the prayers of those who have received or benefited from that mercy and deliverance. But here's the thing. We actually have to pray for each other. The rhythm of the Mass can be such that we don't have much time to actually pray for those who have asked for our prayers, which means that we have to carve some time out for it. This might be at other times during the Mass. It might be before or after Mass. 
But if the ecclesial dimension of the confidior is going to be realized, we have to do what we've been asked to do. Every other member of the assembly has asked you to pray for them. Are you going to do it? The second form of the penitential act is a dialogue between the priest and the people. The priest says, have mercy on us, O Lord, to which the people respond, for we have sinned against you. The priest says, show us, O Lord, your mercy. And the people reply, and grant us your salvation. And notice, while the words are fewer, the context of confession of sin and our need for salvation are all in there. In my own experience in my parish, we seldom use this form, but I know it's the preferred form of Bishop Konderla when he presides at Mass. In addition to the confidior, the penitential rite can also be done by reciting the Kyrie. Kyrie is a Greek word meaning Lord, and the English we usually call this is the Lord have mercy. Three times an invocation will be said, followed by a prayer of supplication, Lord have mercy. Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. The earliest liturgies preserved in writing were in Greek, and the Kyrie is the only part of the liturgy as it's celebrated today that's in Greek. When it's used alone, the invocations of the Kyrie can be many. The Missal used during Mass has eight different options for what's said before the Lord have mercy or Christ have mercy, and there are others that have been proposed for specific feasts or solemnities like Christmas or All Saints' Day. Additionally, the priest might just make them up extemporaneously. All this adds to the fact that if the Kyrie is the penitential rite, you could hear it in lots of different ways. Whichever set of invocations is used, though, there should be a relationship between them that links them all together. They're not meant to be three random statements about Jesus, but they should come from the same source. Of the eight in the Missal, one is included in the order of Mass, and the rest are in an appendix in the back of the book. The one in the order says, You were sent to heal the contrite of heart. Lord, have mercy. You came to call sinners. Christ, have mercy. You are seated at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us. Lord, have mercy. And check out what's in those invocations. Jesus heals the contrite of heart. Jesus calls sinners. Jesus intercedes for us with the Father. And what binds them together? What Jesus does for us. The second option in the appendix in the back. Lord Jesus, you are mighty God and Prince of Peace. Lord, have mercy. Lord Jesus, you are Son of God and Son of Mary. Christ, have mercy. Lord Jesus, you are Word made flesh and splendor of the Father. Lord, have mercy. What's the theme here? Jesus' identity is fully God and fully human. I could go on and on about this, but during the Kyrie, we're not going on and on about our sin. We're recognizing Jesus for who he is and what he does. Remember, the Mass is all about Jesus, and everything in the Mass points towards Jesus. If one of the goals of these episodes of forming our faith is for your next Mass to be your, mess, your best Mass, the Kyrie is a time and a place for the kind of prayer and reflection that opens the Mass up and invigorates us with something we've maybe never noticed before. If the Kyrie is being prayed, listen, really listen to the invocations. What about Jesus Christ is being presented to us? And how do you need to encounter Jesus during the Mass?
Whoever is saying the prayers might have chosen them because they liked them or because they're the ones they know. But there can be some providence at work here for you. God can and does reach us in varied and unexpected ways, and maybe this is one of them. You've just made a general confession of your sinfulness, and the church meets that confession with the confident proclamation of who Jesus Christ is and what he does. That's not a coincidence. A lot of people in our world are turned off by what they think the Catholic Church is and what it teaches. They have the notion that the church is governed by a bunch of gruff sourpusses who go around grumbling, thou shalt not, at everyone, and judging them for their faults. The curie should correct those mistaken notions almost immediately. The church's job isn't to judge people for their sin, to but to proclaim that Jesus Christ has solved the problem of their sin. The confession of sin isn't met with stern judgment, but with tender mercy. But notice what happens first. We confess that we are sinful. The Curie is one of the places where the church prays in threes, and a prayer said in triplicate is meant to stick in our memories. We tend to remember that which has been repeated. There's another reason the Curie has three tropes, though, and it's one that doesn't make sense to us in English because of the way the English language is structured and that's different from ancient Greek or Hebrew. I'm talking above my pay grade here because I don't speak ancient Greek or ancient Hebrew. I don't speak modern Greek or modern Hebrew either, for that matter. What I'm about to say is from scripture professors I've had who do, in fact, read scripture in the ancient languages. So I'm parroting here. Apparently, Greek and Hebrew, as they were spoken when the Bible was being committed to writing, lacked comparative and superlative forms. For us who speak English, there's a way to express a comparison that regularly sees er added to the adjective. The way to express the superlative is adding est to the adjective. Jim is fast, but if Jack finishes the race before Jim, Jack is faster. If Bob finishes before everyone else, Bob is fastest. I'm sure you'll remember that there are some irregulars that have to be memorized, but this is the general rule. Apparently, that rule doesn't exist in ancient Greek or ancient Hebrew, which presents a quandary when trying to compare things. So, I'm told, you just repeat the adjective. Rocky Road ice cream might be good, but cookie dough ice cream is good good. It's more good than Rocky Road, but mint chocolate chip ice cream is good good good. Three goods would have been understood as meaning that it's the best. Appealing to God's mercy three times is an ancient way of expressing that God is full of mercy. So when we're praying the tropes, we're not just asking for God to be merciful to us. We're also expressing our hope and confidence in God being the most merciful, that he can and does take our humility and work it out both for his glory and for our holiness. Regardless of which of the three forms for the penitential rite are used, each of them ends with an absolution. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. We just prayed through a confession of sin and an appeal for God's mercy, so there's a nice reflection in the absolution, appeal for God's mercy and forgiveness of sins so that we can be brought to everlasting life. But it's not as though that everlasting life starts at some point in the future. 
The whole point of the Mass is that God communes with us here and now. We're begging for God's mercy and forgiveness so that we can enjoy the fruits of that communion right now. That's a loaded Catholic word, absolution. Absolution is what we receive during the Sacrament of Reconciliation, and it's what gets pronounced at the end of the penitential rite at Mass. Absolution in the Sacrament of Reconciliation is the act of the priest that declares remission of the guilt and penalty due to sin, and that absolution remits the guilt and penalty of any sin, venial or mortal, that has been confessed and not deliberately withheld. The absolution during Mass is a little different. It doesn't declare that sin has been forgiven, but it's a petition for forgiveness so that we may worthily celebrate the divine mysteries of the liturgy. It lacks the efficacy of sacramental penance, so the penitential rite does not and cannot replace the confession of sins in the sacrament of reconciliation. We're reminded of and confident of God's mercy, but we encounter the tribunal of that mercy in the confessional. With that absolution, the penitential rite ends. I've done this a few times during this series of the Mass, and I'll do it again now. The Mass is only a few minutes old, but we've had all these opportunities to encounter the Lord and His love, His mercy, His solidarity with us. We've been inundated with floods of grace, and they've come quickly. At your next Mass, your best Mass, if you can grab onto one new thing and appreciate it in its depth, and then another thing at your next Mass, imagine how expansive your appreciation of the Mass is after a month and after a year. This could go on for the rest of your life. I know some people who bring a journal to Mass and jot down anything that hits them. If you're likely to forget the insights you get during the Mass, this might be a useful suggestion for you. Provided you're reverent and discreet, there's no issue with it. The Mass isn't a lecture, but you're not there to take notes. You're writing down a few words to remind you of a moment in the Mass that spoke to you. And if you make this a habitual practice, at the end of a year, you'll have at least 50 insights or invocations or lines that spoke to you at Mass that year. And even if they're really brief, you'll have a roadmap of your journey through a year's worth of Masses and a year's worth of spiritual and sacramental growth. I think there could be enormous benefit to a practice like this. We'll end this episode of Forming Our Faith with the end of the penitential rite, but there's one last thing that needs to be said, and it's a really, really important thing. The penitential rite includes two kinds of confession. One is the general confession that we are sinners in needs of God's mercy. The other is the confession that God is merciful to repentant sinners. That's all good news. But one of the most acute diseases of our time is that we've lost a sense of sin. Not just the idea of sin and that we can sin, but the certainty that we do sin. It's not just that sin isn't ideal, but that it is poison that suffocates and disables us from living the life of grace. We buy into the lie that sin is no big deal. Sin is a very big deal. One sin is enough to send me to hell for eternity. One sin disqualifies me from union with God and forever. Sin is a very big deal. In fact, it's the biggest deal. It's the root of every problem any of us have ever faced. It's why the Son of God became human and died and rose. 
It's settling for less than the heroism we were made for. As Catholics, we have to be honest about what we are and who we are. We also have to be honest when we share the fullness of the faith we've received with others. That means we're honest about not just our sins, but about sin itself. And make no mistake, our world would prefer us to be dishonest. It might not care much about my sins, but if I dare to try to call it out on its sin, it will object. When G.K. Chesterton was asked why he became Catholic, his answer was short and sweet, to get rid of my sins. I don't think he was being cheeky. He came to understand both that he was a sinner and that the Catholic Church alone had the certain power and ability to absolve sin in the name of Jesus Christ. At the beginning of every Mass, we express the same humble confession and the same glorious confidence in the promises Jesus has made to the Church. Nothing is good news if we don't know that there's bad news and what that bad news is. The good news is blindingly good because the bad news is so devastatingly bad. The Church has no choice but to proclaim both. The good news prevails, of course, and the rest of the Mass is the presentation of that gospel. Thanks be to God. You can find more episodes of Forming Our Faith on the Eastern Oklahoma Catholic Podcast.